0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to, today to be discussing a really interesting book titled The Politics of Maps, Cartographic Constructions of Israel slash Palestine, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Uh, written by two authors, only one of whom is here right now, but that's perfectly fine. She's going to do a fabulous job telling us about this fascinating book that traces how geography and cartography became entwined with politics, territorial claim-making, and nation-building in this place, Israel-slash-Palestine. So the two authors of the book are Dr. Yitzhak Schnell and Dr. Christine Lewenberger. Dr. Lewenberger is here today uh, to join us. Welcome. Thank you so much, Miranda.
0: It's a pleasure to be here with you today.
1: I would love if you could start off by introducing yourself, your academic background a bit, and explain how you two together came came together to write the book.
0: Yeah, thank you. So I'm an interdisciplinary social scientist with a degree in international relations and a PhD in sociology. I'm currently working at Cornell University's Department of Science and Technology Studies. Which is an interdisciplinary field that is concerned with the social and political dimensions of science and technology. Now, um, I have had a long standing interest in the interlinkages between science, culture, and politics. My first major research project was actually on science under socialism in East Germany before 1989, before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And at that time, I was interested in the psychological sciences. In particular, I was interested in how psychological ideas about selfhood, for instance, and how psychotherapeutic and psychiatric practices changed as a result of the shift to capitalism post 1989. So I've had this long-standing interest in understanding the politics of science, how science becomes embedded in particular political systems. And this is also what sparked my interest in the politics of cartography and the politics of maps in Israel-Palestine. So how did I get to Israel-Palestine from East Germany? Well, in 2008, I was uh, very lucky to receive a Fulbright Scholars Award to study the social consequences of the separation barrier on Israelis and Palestinians. And um, as a Fulbright Scholar, I was hosted by Yitzhak Schnell at um, the Geography Department at Tel Aviv University. And at that time, we first planned to work on barrier-related stuff together. But then we very soon realized we both had a passion for maps and cartographic representations and um, thinking about how can we think of maps as political um, products or rather as products that have political consequences. And uh, then I was... um, Again, lucky to receive a National Science Foundation Scholars Grant, which uh, then enabled me to spend um, often two uh, two um, long uh, semesters in Israel Palestine. So, uh, so that is that's a little bit about me.
1: So, in the early twentieth century, um, sort of as your book covers quite a long time period or goes into a lot of detail over a time period, um, I was wondering if you could sort of start us off by thinking about and telling us about how map making helped sort of brand the idea of a nation of Israel before the country actually existed legally?
0: Yeah. um, Thank you for that question. Um, In the book, we differentiate between state making maps and nation building maps. Now um, I'll explain what that means. Maps, um, are important for making states because uh, it's essential to be able to survey the land, the territory that's going to be under your control, and to map the territory. And as many historians have pointed out, if you can survey and map a territory, it also means that you can potentially eventually control the territory, unless you know what you're Uh, what is your territory, it's very hard to control it. So um, state-making maps consolidate the power of the state. But then we also discuss nation-building maps, and they are slightly different from state-building maps. Benedict Anderson... um, has this concept of logo maps, which are basically maps of a nation state. That's a nation state that uh, is delineated by its border. So, for instance, weather maps are uh, logo maps. They represent the national territory. And um, logo maps can literally, according to Anderson, create a sense of national belonging to this imagined community of a nation. So uh, nation-building maps do have a role to play in terms of uh, eventually creating cohesive uh, national uh, geopolitics. So um, to give you an example, in the book we write about the Jewish National Fund. The Jewish National Fund um, had designed what is known as the blue box or the Eretz Israel box. And on that box... You see um, a map of uh, what is uh, often referred to as Greater Israel. Uh, So you have Jewish, uh, potentially Jewish land on both sides of the Jordan River. And uh, that was an important logo map for what uh, uh, was considered Greater Israel. So um, it sort of helped create the imagination of uh, where the the dream or the vision of a homeland could be. so so this is how map making helped uh, brand the idea of uh, the nation of Israel through the state uh, building maps, but also the nation building maps.
1: Mm. Thank you for explaining that and clarifying the sort of two different types of maps. I think that was a really interesting aspect of um this book is, unpacking the different types of maps, both practically, but also in terms of how they're then used. Um, And I want to sort of stay on this idea of kind of the confluence of a practical map that nonetheless has very political usages, um, which you discuss in the book, particularly around um, map making before um, the creation of the State of Israel, particularly when it comes to the British mandate, and working with zionist organizations at the time and in fact you argue in the book quote when it comes to map making the british and zionists aims seemed to converge even though their ultimate goals diverged can you help us understand this collaboration
0: yeah yeah i mean it's a very complex story and incredibly interesting uh, in terms of the history of science as well but um just to uh, try to explain this facet of the issue here, the British colonialists wanted to replace the Ottoman land system, which included what we now consider very informal and unscientific land allocation practices. And um, they uh, wanted to... uh, supersede these informal practices with modern surveying and measuring techniques to spatially demarcate territory accurately according to modern science. So for instance, under the Ottoman land system, what was understood as village land was defined in terms of the distance from the village after which a loud human voice cannot make itself heard. So obviously, uh, according to a modern scientific method, that would not be considered a very accurate way of defining uh, and designating village land. So the British, therefore, wanted to bring um, order, mod- a modernist order and science um, to this task of um, allocating um, land parcels. And um, that drive, that modernist drive to register the land according to modern scientific methods, went hand in hand with with Zionists' vision to make it their own. Because as I mentioned earlier, Um, as we know from history, to survey and map the land is to control it. And, of course, the scientists, a lot of them were also cartographers who were actually trained in Austria um, and worked side by side with some of the British cartographers. They also knew if we can survey and map the land, we know what's there. That gives us a chance to then control it and to own it. So uh, that is where some of the goals of the Zionists and the British colonialists converged. Now, where it ultimately diverged to some degree is at the end of the British Mandate. So at the end of the British Mandate, um, there's this story that was told to us by uh, um, a very um, famous cartographer, Um, who was actually sort of part of the history of cartography um, in the uh, 20th century um, in Israel, uh, he told us that the Haganah, which is the Jewish fighting force, uh, shortly before the British were about to leave uh, the territory um, and wanted to basically transfer a lot of the maps that they had um, uh, made um, from what then was the Survey of Palestine to Cyprus, the Haganah went in one night into the Survey of Palestine um, and basically emptied it of all the materials, stole all the maps, all the printing plates. So basically emptied the whole building, about 80 percent of it. Uh, And that meant that, of course, the British had not much material to bring to Cyprus anymore. It also meant that that material did not go uh, to uh, Palestinians, but it all went to uh, the the Zionists, who then basically established the Israeli state and established the Survey of Israel, which is actually still in the very same building where the Survey of Palestine used to be. And um, the Israeli state and its stakeholders then could continue the land registration process um, and uh, that that was started under the British and ultimately they declared 93% of the land as state land and hereby of course also dispossessed the Palestinian Arab land um, holders. So, um, So that is where you could say that uh, their goals diverged, although uh, some stakeholders and interviewers, interviewees who were there at the time said there was also some collaboration between the British and um, the, the Zionists, and uh, some Brits Brit certainly didn't mind that some of the material or a lot of the material ended up um, in Israeli uh, Zionist hands.
1: Thank you for explaining that. Um, I, I found that quite interesting to sort of, we, we often know the sort of end results that the mandate then transitions essentially into the um, state of Israel, um, but sort of seeing the process through which it gets there and the different actors and how they interact um, was quite interesting through the lens of maps. Um, so if we now sort of continue to move chronologically um, after the founding of the state of Israel, Uh, You then take us through the idea of Israelizing and Hebrewizing, I suppose, um, maps of Israel-Palestine as a multiple-year, multiple-decade process, really. Um, And you talk about this in a number of examples, but I wonder if you could explain this process through the example of the map titled Eretz Israel, a map for knowing the homeland for youngsters and the general public.
0: Yeah, um, that's a very important map. Um, And uh, to just contextualize how we analyze this map, I want to explain our methods of doing so. So we were interested in how maps communicate a certain visual rhetoric. And in order to do that, uh, we looked at three different aspects within a map, such as uh, what we call textual signifiers, like, for instance, our names in Hebrew or Arabic. uh, Because that already is very meaningful in and of itself, uh, because it tells us which particular audience the cartographer wants to reach. Uh, Then we also look at visual signifiers such as colors and symbols. So colors can be very um, laden with meaning. Uh, So like blue, of course, represents Israel in a lot of maps, and red often is used to represent um, uh, surrounding um, Arab territory. And of course, these uh, colors, again, carry a lot of meaning. Uh, They're sort of signifiers of nationhood or of danger or whatever you want uh, to signify. And then we also looked at spatial demarcation. How are the borders demarcated and where actually are the borders On a map. And this particular map um, sort of exemplifies the mapping practices before 1967, before uh, the 1967 war. And what is interesting about this map is um, how the boundaries are demarcated. So, uh, for instance, the the West Bank is clearly demarcated and differentiated from Israeli territory. And then also The Palestinian Arab topography that was there before 1948 and the Palestinian Arab spaces are basically eliminated or sort of designified or marginalized. And instead, you have place names um, represented in Hebrew. And this map is particularly important also because it did represent the consensus about how to delineate the borders before 1967. But then that consensus evaporated after the 1967 war, uh, during which Israel more than tripled its territory. Um, And also after 1967 it was the case that the Israeli parliament decided to eliminate the 1949 Armistice Line between Israel and Jordan, which is often referred to as the Green Line. And that then led to what we refer to as map wars um, in Israel and also beyond its borders, which basically um, implies that different governmental and non-governmental organizations um, put forth various... um, and often contradictory geopolitical visions of the territory.
1: So this was fascinating um, because the Green Line in international documents is a thing that there are literally thousands of pages devoted to analyzing and debating. Um, And so to read about how it was purposely taken off, um, I think gave a really interesting perspective on just how important maps are to this idea of national storytelling in Israel. Um, And you kind of take this again further, sort of starting with this map, but then continuing, and you talk about comparing different editions of the Atlas of Israel, published from 1956 all the way up to, I believe, 2009. Um, And you've already obviously talked about one really big change, um, but what else can we learn about changes in this national story through maps by looking at editions of the same book over time.
0: Yes, um, atlases um, are a form of national storytelling. So that's why they are so interesting, because we learn so much about how a nation wants its story to be told. And um, what is the case when we talk about maps in atlases is that we assume that these maps are objective Scientific and non-political, so uh, we never sort of question the maps in these sorts of atlases. But as we try to show in the map uh, in the book, that maps have often uh, political assumptions and values embedded within them, and. If you look at maps within the atlases, you also find that various political assumptions um, are embedded within these maps. So, for instance, in the earlier edition of the atlas, um, the focus is primarily on Israel's historic past. Uh, So it's... um, Uh, The Jewish history that is being emphasized rather than the uh, the uh, Arab-Palestinian history uh, that is uh, de-emphasized. And uh, another issue that is emphasized is Zionist achievements or what are considered to be Zionist achievements. For instance, Jewish settlements uh, were represented as pioneering efforts that transformed what was supposedly a barren land and um, helped make uh, the desert bloom. This is a metaphor that is often used when thinking about uh, Jews coming to Palestine, that they helped make the desert bloom. And that sort of uh, story is very much embedded within some of those early editions. Then in later editions, the story, of course, shifts. Um, And for instance, it emphasizes Israel's accomplishment as a developed country with a very high standard of living. So if you want to understand something about a nation um, telling its story and and self-perception, looking at atlases is a very interesting lens into uh, dominant storytelling practices. Then one story that uh, we find um, goes across all the different editions is the cartographic theme um, that uh, Israel is this small, vulnerable, very densely populated sliver of land surrounded by a seemingly homogenous and um, large Arab-controlled territory. Um, and that sort of metaphor, that sort of story, of course, also re- reminds us of the story of Masada, of basically uh, um, Jews under siege. And uh, that story gets sort of uh, recycled through all the different editions. And that, of course, also does a lot of ideological work in different ways.
1: And this is something that was consistently interesting is this ideological work of maps, um, even in ones you may not necessarily think of. So an atlas doesn't necessarily immediately spring to mind as being political in the way that you mentioned um, the blue boxes at the beginning of the interview, uh, being for essentially raising money to fund the creation of the state seems a bit more obviously political. Um, But then there was a category of map you talked about in the book that I know personally, I'd never really considered in terms of politics, which are maps for drivers. Um, So the idea of we have in the UK of going somewhere for the weekend and you need a map to get from point A to point B. Um, You show in the book that these were incredibly political in a lot of ways, um, including from sort of particular right-wing interest groups. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about sort of the politics of these kinds of maps.
0: Yeah, there's actually a very interesting story that it is actually this kind of map that first really got me interested in the politics of maps. So as I mentioned earlier, I first came to Israel, Palestine in in, in 2008, and I was supposed to uh, interview uh, interviewees in the West Bank as well as in Israel. And uh, the first time I went into the West Bank, I thought I would be well equipped bringing a Carter map um, of the West Bank into uh, uh, to Palestine and then navigate my way around um, the cities in the West Bank. So uh, with a colleague, we then drove into the West Bank. That was for my first interview as part of my Fulbright project, um, and I... Um, basically followed where she was going um, on the map. And at one point, I realized I could no longer figure out where in the world we were on this particular map. And I was getting a slightly alarmed because it was also at a time where there was a lot of political unrest. Um, and I said to my colleague here, uh, I think um, I can no longer find where we are on this map. And she asked, well, what map have you got there? I said, well, the Carter map, that's the standard tourist map that you get in any store inside Israel. And she just laughed. It's like, oh, that map, we've fallen off that map a long time ago. So um, that is why um, I got stuck working on maps and the politics of maps for a long time after that. And what basically happened that day is that um, we used the QA map that delineates the road system um, inside the West Bank in order to get into Ramallah, which is a Palestinian controlled uh, um, territory, of course. Uh, but the roads are very clearly delineated in areas where the uh, where the territory is under Israeli military control, but the moment you get into Palestinian-controlled control, areas, basically the road system disappears. So what that tells us is that this particular map is really meant for a particular audience, which in this case is Jewish settlers who uh go around the West Bank and Jewish um, Israelis also are not allowed by Israeli law to actually enter Palestinian controlled areas such as Ramallah. So therefore, they, the, they don't represent the road system in um, um, in these maps. So... Um, so that's something to keep in mind, that every map has a particular audience and has a particular function for a particular audience. Uh, and of course, for an international like, be, like me, having that map was not very helpful because, yes, I could navigate the Israeli-controlled territories wi- within the West Bank easily, but the moment you get into an A-zone, that, that is the Palestinian-controlled area, you're basically lost. So, uh, so this is one way that uh, we can think of maps as geared towards particular audience audiences uh, but then um, other aspects about this map are interesting so for instance uh, what uh, by a lot of international organizations uh, uh, is referred to as the West Bank um, which is uh, according to international law a separate territory from Israel uh, is uh, represented in the card map as Judea and Samaria which um, are uh, historic regions that uh, uh, that are seen as part of the Israeli national space. So, just by using uh, those terms, the cartographers or the map makers already make a claim on, on that territory as basically part of the Israeli space. Then, also, the Carter map omits the green line. As I mentioned before, that's the 1949 armistice line. So therefore, it's very hard to actually clearly uh, know whether you're in the West Bank or inside Israel, um, and uh, the card, of course, uh, omits the green line because that is also uh, according to the decree of the Israeli government uh, post 1967. Uh, but um, the moment you look at internationally produced maps, the green line is actually there, um, and then also um, the Carter map. Uh, primarily attends to Hebrew topography as I mentioned earlier, for instance, Palestinian roads are not really represented or um, any sort of uh, important uh, Palestinian uh, uh, towns or villages other than the very big ones are hardly represented.
1: I'm okay, I feel better about not having knowing anything about this and being um, very intrigued by this category of maps um, to know that you are also. Um, very interested when you found out about them. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I the idea of oh, we've been off that map for a long time is fascinating. Um, yes, I was rather alarm at the time actually. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Um, so perhaps now to move to maps that our listeners certainly myself might be more familiar with, which are the maps um, used in sort of international debates and discussions about peace in this area. Um, and you discuss in the book Peace Now, the organization, the NGO, um, and discuss how they use MAPS as part of, quote, narrative and representational strategies to advocate a two-state solution. Can you tell us about how MAPS are used to achieve this purpose?
0: Yes. So, um there is a range of human rights organizations uh, organizations inside Israel, such as Peace Now or B'Tselem, um, that does quite a lot of mapping. And actually, Itzhak, uh, my co-author, has also done maps for Peace Now himself, and I'm sure he has uh, stories to tell about that, too. So um, these categories of maps are very, very different to, for instance, the uh, tourist maps, obviously. Uh, because the tourist maps don't represent the West Bank as uh, basically separate from Israel, but the uh, Peace Now maps or the Bitseller maps clearly delineate the green line. They clearly delineate the West Bank as separate from Israel because they uh, want to show their alignment to international law, because according to international law, uh, the... The West Bank um, still is a separate territory, and you cannot claim that territory uh, uh, until there is an agreed-upon peace deal. So um, uh, the the Peace Now maps, as well as the Bitseller maps, uh, tend to... Uh, emphasize for instance the green line because they their commitment to international law and clearly represent the west bank as a separate territory from israel and what they also tend to do is to emphasize the very territorial fragmentation inside the west bank so that the geography the spatial geography inside the west bank is incredibly complicated because there are some territories that are in under Israeli military control, some territories under uh, Palestinian control, and some uh, territories under Palestinian and Israeli control. So what a lot of these organizations want to show is how fragmented that territory really is. And the fragmentation, of course, is a problem um, for Palestinians trying to navigate, for instance, from Bethlehem to Ramallah because they they have to go through Israeli-controlled territories. So therefore, they have to go through various checkpoints uh, uh, in order to... Uh, um, uh, to be checked uh, for, um, in order to enhance uh, supposedly Israeli security. So uh, that means navigating on Palestinian roads from A to B often takes two or three times as long as it would take if you're navigating in the West Bank uh, from a uh, Jewish settlements into Tel Aviv, for instance. So because of that territorial fragmentation, that means there's a whole range of um, uh, legal restrictions and movement restrictions uh, that um, impact particularly Palestinian drivers. So all these organizations want to point to that territorial fragmentation, and they want they base um, their delineation of the region on international law. Um, moreover, they really try to. Uh, represent the territory in a scientifically accurate fashion. And uh, the people I've interviewed in these organizations, they point out that we need to be 100% accurate because uh, that establishes the credibility of these organizations. A lot of these organizations uh, often have a tough life um, in in current Israel um, and uh, and also in the past, because um, they were often seen as um, um, as pro peace um, and as sometimes pro Palestinian, so they uh, they basically say that uh, we need to be neutral, and the neutrality can be established by being scientific. And that is so important in a politically charged environment, is to be seen, to be following the science. Of course, um, in the last two years or so, this has become more complicated uh, as we've all lived through a pandemic, and we understand how politicized um, scientific findings can become, but at least at that time and in that context, following the science was seen as the way to go if you wanted to make a point about international law.
1: Thank you for um, kind of putting that into context. And again, this the idea of kind of how scientific are maps versus how political um, is something that does seem to be changing rather a lot over time. Um, critical cartography comes up in your book as well. Um, which is a discipline, I think, that has a lot of potential, um, as well as obviously the work it's already done. So we've talked a lot about sort of the Israeli use of maps for political purposes. But what about the other side? How have Palestinians used maps to for the same sorts of attempts, state building, nation building, um, but on the Palestinian side? Yeah,
0: so uh, there are different types of mapping practices. Uh, I mean, the one... Message that we want to get across in this book is that there are um, so many different types of organizations, governmental and non-governmental organizations, that put forth different geopolitical visions. That there is no real consensus on either side. Oftentimes, you hear these stories on the Israeli side: "Oh, all Palestinians only represent uh, uh, historic Palestine and claim the whole um, the whole territory as their own." Well. That is maybe one particular segment of the population or some political um, stakeholders, but uh, there are many different types of mapping practices on the Palestinian side as well as on the Israeli side, and we have to understand that diversity to understand the complexity of the conflict. So uh, when it comes to Palestinian maps, uh, one type of mapping practice is uh, making historic maps that basically trace Palestinian displacement after uh, 1948. And these sorts of maps can be understood as a form of uh, counter-mapping or resistance mapping to state-defined territory. So to uh the way the territory is defined according to the Israeli state. So, um, for instance, Salman Abusita um, is a very important geographer in this um, debate. Um, He uh, did a a Palestinian atlas and did various maps where he basically reconstructs pre-1948 Palestine And um, those sorts of cartographic reconstructions serve as a tool, um, in his case, to advocate for the right of return for Palestinians who were displaced from their homes post-1948. So this is a form of resistance mapping. But then you also have what we call state-building maps um, in the West Bank. So, for instance, the... um, The PNA, uh, the uh, Palestinian National Authority, um, they um, do or engage in what we refer to as state building maps. So they clearly delineate uh, the West Bank and Gaza as separate from Israel. Um, And they say we need to survey and map these territories that because... um, If and when we have full sovereignty over those territories, we need to be able to engage in uh, in governance um, um, and in effectively administering these territories. So, state building maps in the PNA they do not represent the whole of historic Palestine, they represent exactly the territory that would be expected to come under the control of the Palestinians in a two-state solution. Uh, But then you also have what we refer to as nation-building maps. Um, And those sometimes are local maps of historic Palestine. And their function is to also increase people's sense of belonging to the territory. So in the Palestinian case, uh, we have to differentiate between all these different types of maps in order to really understand the
1: complexity of what's going on there. And this is obviously, as you sort of implicitly outlined, very challenging to do in an environment that we've already discussed was sort of dominated even before the state of Israel by Zionist organizations, then by the government of Israel. Um, You talked about with Peace Now and the driving map. How the physical logistics on the ground create kind of different cartographic realities for both populations. Um, so could you talk a little bit about sort of the why is it hard to make maps for Palestinian goals and purposes? We we've sort of talked about it in terms of the kind of um descent aspect, but as you detail in the book, there are some really key like logistical and data challenges as well.
0: Yes, yeah. uh, I mean, there are many different issues that we could be raising here, but uh, I want to just mention a few. Now, historically, as uh, we've already discussed, uh, after the British mandate, uh, the Zionists had access to most of the maps. 80% of the maps basically went uh, to the Zionists and then to the the Israeli state. And Palestinians were left with virtually no maps, which uh, was a huge problem. And they, uh, they of course, uh, um, point out uh, in relation to, for instance, subsequent peace negotiations, that... um, they said they were often very unprepared to engage in peace negotiations because they didn't have their own maps. They didn't have the know-how or the the mapping um, technology, um, and I mean, didn't have sovereignty over the territory that they so they could map it uh, to bring to the to the peace negotiations to show. Uh, what is going on on the ground from a Palestinian perspective. So they say the lack of maps uh, really contributed to the failed peace process because they could often not assert their land claims, for instance. Um, And um, so that is one aspect. Then uh, another aspect is, of course, mapping if you don't have territorial sovereignty is really challenging. So I've interviewed uh, one of the prime cartographers um, in Palestine who also had made um, his own map, uh, a tourist map of uh, Palestine. And uh, he told me this story that um, he once was navigating, I think, from Bethlehem to Ramallah, and he was stopped at a checkpoint inside the West Bank. And an Israeli soldier saw that he had a map in his car, and on the map it said Palestine. And the soldier uh, basically started yelling at him, like, how come you have this map? And uh, my interviewee, the cartographer, said, well, what's wrong with having a map? And the soldier said, well, it says Palestine. Where did you get it? And my uh, interviewee says, I did it. So the soldier apparently treated him like um, a terrorist. So just having a map that says Palestine on it is already seen as a as a subversive act. So obviously it's very hard to first of all um be able to get access to the teri- territory that you want to survey and map, and then even if you have the final product, you can still get into trouble for actually just having the map. So um, that is very challenging. Uh, a long, one last point I want to make in relation to this um, is that uh, after the separation barrier was built uh, by um, Israel in 2001, the Palestinians were acutely aware that unless they can map the barrier and show exactly uh, what social um, and economic uh, and territorial consequences the barrier has for different Palestinian communities along the barrier, um, they, they won't be able to advocate for their cause. So um, after the barrier was built, um, and the cartographic know-how what had been built up um, in the West Bank at that point, they um, dedicated the whole committee to just mapping the barrier and its social and political and economic consequences so then they could go to the United Nations and to other international organizations and show, well, this is the impact of the barrier and this is how it restricts um, the freedom of movement, for instance. So being able to map Also, in this case, means being able to advocate for Palestinian interests.
1: I was hoping that that story from the book might make it into the interview. So, thank you for sharing that. Um, I think it's very evocative of how intertwined these different aspects are. Um, And we have already spoken about something that surprised you uh, before the project, what kind of surprised you and prompted you to look into this. But I was wondering if there's anything during the research or writing of this book. Um, That particularly surprised you? Maybe even something that didn't make it in?
0: Yes. Um, Well, I would say uh, being in Israel-Palestine during two wars with Gaza in 2012 and 2014, those were, for me who was, uh, I call myself uh, a beginner in war studies. Those were for me very intense experiences, but experiences that I think are fundamentally important if you want to understand the region and the psychology of the people on both sides. Uh, Because otherwise uh, you come from the outside and you don't really understand the psychological and the physiological impact. Uh, It has on people if missiles are flying towards you um, or if there is political uh, instability and insecurity of any sort. So in 2012, I was regularly moving between Tel Aviv and Ramallah. I'm sure there were not many people who were moving between Tel Aviv Aviv and Ramallah as the missiles were flying across uh, the border between Gaza and Israel. And I had the opportunity to talk to people on both sides, on the Israeli side as well as the Palestinian side, uh, that is uh, the Palestinian side here meeting the West Bank, because obviously I could not go into Gaza. And for me, it was very telling to heal, hear the stories from people on both sides. And it was also telling to um, to feel the indifference sometimes of people on either side about the other. Because as a colleague told me that when missiles are flying towards you, you're not gonna hug your enemy. So um, even though I had been engaged with a lot of peace activists on both sides, these very peace activists, they often did not show a lot of empathy towards the people on the other side once the missiles started flying, and I could understand why. But it was also very disconcerting um, and and sort of depressing as well, because I could see how people um, on the Palestinian side were suffering, and I could see also... Um, how people on the Israeli side uh, were suffering in different ways, to different degrees, but still everyone uh, was suffering. So uh, I find that once there are these borders, uh, border tensions and uh, uh, and uh, insecurities, the border, also the mental border, becomes harder. And that hardness, of course, stays. And that, that has a long history. So, uh, but then, uh, also in 2014, um, when I was um, in Jerusalem, I often talked to Israeli and Palestinian colleagues about what, what was going on here, and it looked very desperate. There was street fighting going on in Jerusalem. I mean, literally Arabs and Jews fighting in the streets. And I remember telling a colleague of mine who is a peace activist uh, that, oh, it looks hopeless. and. My colleague turns to me uh, very sternly and says, "I live here. I cannot afford to give up hope." So, and that I think is very telling about uh, the sense of purpose that a lot of people in that region have to uh, to uh, move peace forward. And I think that's why I'm I'm still in love with the region <laughs> because. Uh, people are very engaged, they are very political, and they do have a sense of purpose, whether on the Israeli or the Palestinian side. Uh, I mean, obviously not everyone, but um, a large majority of the people want to see an improvement of relations. So you see that sense of purpose transpire in these moments of insecurity. And you also see their sense of hope that, yes, despite all that, things can improve. So I guess that is what was very um, telling for me in terms of uh, what it was like to, uh, to live in such a region.
1: Well, I always ask that question to get a sort of behind the scenes idea of what the process was to come up with the book. Um, and that's a really great example of uh, behind the scenes. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and then as my final question, um, what are, now that this book is over, this obviously massive, massive project, What are you working on now?
0: Yes. Um, I mean, this book was a massive project Um, and I loved it and hated it uh, at times (laughs) Uh, but I'm just so glad it's off my desk at this point but I'm glad we did it and it was a very successful collaboration and I feel like uh, I know more about that region than any other region in the world including the region where I grew up in. Uh, I know less about that region where I grew up in which is Switzerland than I now know about Israel-Palestine. So um, my new research collaboration actually arose out of a chance meeting I had with colleagues at Hebrew University in, uh, uh, when was it, in 2013. So um, at the time I was um, a visiting scholar um, at Hebrew University and I met um, a a peace researcher um, there, uh, by chance, um, actually, in the residential housing at Hebrew University, the alarms went off as they often do in Jerusalem, and uh, um, and we met because uh, there was again insecurity and alarms going. So we came out of our apartment, and that's how we met. And then we realized we actually had shared common interests in peace building in conflict regions, and uh, it just speaks to how uh, often research projects um, don't come come about through planning that much, but through serendipity and maybe good luck or whatever you wanna call it. So um, I met my uh, new research collaborator, Dr. Lazar Sepadreco in that way. And um, he is originally from the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. um, And um, as I said, also a peace um, researcher. And uh, with him, we started various projects looking at peace building in um, East Africa. So basically, um, I had this uh, focus um, on the Middle East for so many years, basically uh, for... um, Uh, over 10 years, and now I've uh, moved my focus, my research focus, to East Africa. And currently with another colleague, Bertrand Misero, whom I also met at Hebrew University, we are actually working on migration issues, uh, looking at migratory patterns between East Africa, which is primarily the DR Congo, uh, Burundi, and uh, Rwanda, um, and the united states and we're interested in factors that enhance or hinder migration and integration so the aim is to uh, provide academic insights into the process of migration and resettlement and to come up with best practices concerning migrants integration um into their new host communities so um so it's slightly different topic to maps in Israel Palestine, but it's still very international. And uh, given that I'm here in upstate New York, I guess it always uh, I always have this drive to uh, uh, to do projects in faraway places that are a bit more interesting than um, Ithaca, New York.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. It sounds like a very interesting uh, research project, and certainly one that you can sink your teeth into, uh, just like you've done with this one. Um, and so while you're off on that new project, listeners can read your current book, which again is titled The Politics of Maps, Cartographic Constructions of Israel Palestine, published by the Oxford University Press in 2020. Um, we have had with us one of the two authors today, Dr. Christine Lowenbarger. Um, the other author is, of course, Dr. Yitzhak Schnell. Thank you, Christine, for being here and sharing your time and expertise with us.
0: Thank you so much, Miranda, for reading the book and asking these fantastic questions. And I always love talking about this project.